Yes, we are ready. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be back with you. I trust uh, for those of you that were here last week and enjoyed uh, hearing from Doug. Uh, wasn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he uh, did he. From what I understand, he ended with a little bit of a prestidigitation. Slide of hand. That's a fancy word for magic. Did I teach you all a new word? Prestidigitate. I like to throw that one out every once in a while. So, well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, and uh, many of you may or may not know this, but uh, when I first graduated from seminary back in late 1997, so it's been a minute, uh, I intentionally did not pursue a job or a pastoral role in a church. I, I was trying to figure out where I stood from a denominational standpoint. And uh, I just graduated from seminary from another denomination, and more and more I was believing and realizing that I was more of the Reformed Presbyterian variety. That's why I'm here this morning, right? So when I left school, I didn't have a job, but I always wanted to live in Nashville. So why did I want to live in Nashville? Well, like most everyone who decides to move to Nashville without a job, they have dreams, big dreams. And I, along with several million other daydreamers, believed that I could somehow, some way, work or perform in the music industry. I wanted to be a rock star, yeah. Yeah, so, so I pointed my car towards Nashville and away I went. Uh, when I got here, somehow I convinced uh, an apartment complex to lease me an apartment. I don't know how I did that. It was small. I discovered I could vacuum the entire apartment without unplugging the vacuum cleaner. That was a feat. But on day one of living in Nashville, I got a job at a temp agency. You know, I went looking for temporary work, and they said, hey, we're looking for someone to work here in the office uh, with us. Do you want to work here? So I gladly said yes, because I need income. And so I, I met people uh, once I got situated in Nashville. I got plugged into a church right away, started making friends in the, in the music biz. Uh, and uh, I would meet people, and I discovered right away when you said things like, you know, what do you do for a living? Uh, they would answer with things like, I'm a musician or uh, I'm a songwriter. And it seemed like everyone that I met fit into one of those two categories, everyone I met. And, and in fact, I started telling people those things too. Why? Because I played the guitar and I wrote songs, right? Now, how many people have heard the songs I've written? <laughs> There's a reason there are no hands up right now. Uh, oh yeah, one person, <laughs> I, got, I got one. Uh, there, there's a very good reason for that because they're, they're not good, they're not good. And uh, maybe six or so total people have heard these songs, uh, three of which are my immediate family members. So uh, th those, are, those were the, the only people that ever heard uh, any of the songs that I wrote. So was I really a songwriter? You know, at what point, at what point can someone with a straight face look at you and say, I'm a songwriter and be genuine about it. Uh, who can define that? You know, are you a songwriter well, once you've written a song? Are you a songwriter once uh, you've made money from that song? Are you a songwriter once that song has been uh, published? Uh, who's to say? Who's to say, right? So we have a sign just outside the door here that says how to build a church, a study on the book of Ephesians. To this point in this study, we, we've been laying the groundwork. We've been laying the groundwork. We've been setting the stage. We've not gotten into the nuts and bolts of building uh, a church yet. Like most of Paul's writings, he gives us what's called the indicatives. All right? He begins with the indicatives. That's what's true um, uh, about you. And after he gives the indicatives, he gets into the imperatives. In light of what's true about your, you, here's what now you have to go and do. Okay, now go do this. So the further we get into chapter 2 and, and the further we get into the book of Ephesians, the more we're getting into the now go do this portions 
of Ephesians. So, so what is it? What type of behavior makes the church the church? And furthermore, we'll be getting into this study today, uh, what makes a Christian a Christian? You know, because all this has to do with the, that, that broader heading of sanctification. You know, what, what, uh, what, what is it? How do you grow in Christ? How do you die into sin and live unto righteousness? And then, and then, how does that look once we start interacting with one another? It's great when it happens on an individual level, but when we gather here as the church, that's, that's what it is. The church, every single time, is a bunch of sinners getting together and trying to, to live life together, going through sanctification together. So what does it look like when we start interacting with one another as we are sanctified? So as we get into the text today, it's going to get a little dicey. There's going to be some parts that are a little dicey. I'm not going to be able to pull any punches because, quite simply, the, the text doesn't allow it. And whatever jabs you think I may be sending your way today, <laughs> please know that they are equally for me. I am amongst those. I'm amongst those sinners saved by grace and in the process of sanctification. We're all this. And so we all have to say, at one point, look at each other and say, I know the same Holy Spirit that lives in Jan lives in me. And so, therefore, whatever differences that we may have... Uh, we should be able to overcome those differences because we have the Holy Spirit in us, okay? Uh, so I'm not taking any jabs on purpose. Um, now, where I left off last time was the idea that was uh, developed in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that we're all saved by grace. That's the good news. We're all saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it's the free gift of God so that no one may boast. Remember, that's the indicative, okay? That's what's true. That's what's true about your salvific state, your, your salvation. That's what's true about you. You're saved by grace. How have you been saved? By grace. The grace that God uh, gives you is what saves you, not your good works, not your good looks, Kyle, not your, not your, uh, your intelligence, uh, not, your, uh, not your social standing, but the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And the vehicle whereby you receive that grace is, what did we say it was? What's the vehicle by which you receive the grace? Through faith. faith. There it is. Yeah, grace through faith. The fact that you have faith, the very fact that you have faith and believe in the saving power of God's grace, even your faith, that is a gift of God. The fact that you have faith, that's a gift of God. That's not of your own doing. Even your faith is a gift of grace so that no one can boast. And that's the great equalizer. That is the great equalizer. So none of us can say, you know, uh, you know I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian because I did X, Y, or Z. And, and, and if we could say that, if we were in a position to say that, do you see where that puts us? If we were to say, I'm a Christian because I did A or I did B, when we start telling our lost friends about Jesus, do you see what that, that does? Rather than saying, Jesus, you would have to say, if you want to be a Christian, do what I do. This is how you get it done. Do what I do. Instead of pointing to Jesus, we end up pointing to ourselves. This is why I say, even your faith is a gift of, of grace so that no one can boast. It's the great equalizer. Um, it has to go back to Christ. It has to point to the cross of Christ. We're all, every last one of us, we're all sinners saved by grace to the exclusion of no one. No one gets in if I could put that in quotes, any other way. Now, the reason I rehashed all this is because it provides us a, a really important foundation for what we're going to read today. Before we get into what we read today, we need to make sure we've got that, that we're all, each and every one of us, saved by grace. So let's look at the passage for today. And it's only going to be a few verses, just a handful of verses, but it's just enough to get me into trouble. So 
if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians, or you can follow along with me up here. I'll put the verses up here. And we're going to begin with verse 11 and go through verse 16. That's it, just 11 through 16, and there's a lot in there. Uh, the, because there's a lot of things that are just going to require just some explanation because you're going to read and say, what, what does he mean by that? What is he saying? This is Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. And remember, coming off the idea that we're all saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. Level playing field. Ephesians 2, 11 and following says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, even that, this is a lot. What? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so we'll stop right there for a second just to make sure we understand just that much. Uh, a little bit to explain. Paul is speaking to a Gentile audience. You know what we mean by we, when we say Gentile audience? What's a Gentile audience? non-Jewish, typically a non-Jewish audience, okay? So he's giving a reminder how things were not so long ago. For Jews, circumcision, which had been given by God to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17, that was a physical sign, a sign and a seal of their covenant with God, the covenant that God made with Abraham, okay? It pointed to the particular and exclusive relationship which Israel had with God. The uncircumcision of the Gentiles was symbolic of their um, estrangement, their estrangement from God. Now, you may or may not find this interesting, but uh, circumcision wasn't exclusively an Israelite practice, okay? There were some in other parts of, of, uh, of the world at that point that, that practiced it too, okay? So what gives here? What gives here? Well, uh, you may find this also interesting. The phrase, the uncircumcision, that was a Jewish term of derision. It was an insult. It was an insult that they would say about, like, if you remember uh, when um, David was fighting uh, the, the Philistines, they would call him the uncircumcised Philistines. You uncircumcised Philistine. It was altogether one giant insult, right? So as a term of, of derision, uh, if one was a Gentile, they were outside of the covenant of people of God. Now, Gentiles didn't go around calling themselves, believe it or not, we're Gentiles, you know, as you might imagine, because it was to the Jew, it was like, I'm Jewish, right? You're a Gentile. So it was like me and everybody else in the world. And so if you're everybody else in the world, you wouldn't say, well, we're just a part of the everybody else. You know, you wouldn't say that. You would have your own national pride, right? You wouldn't go around saying, we're the uncircumcised. You wouldn't do that, right? So though it was a sign of God's covenant, notice how Paul qualifies it. He says of circumcision that it is made in the flesh by hands. But wait, is that all it is? I thought it was a sign given to us by God, okay? Now Paul is saying something along the lines that it's made in the flesh by hand. So what's Paul doing here? Why does it seem like, does it seem like he's discounting circumcision now? Is there a reason he would be discounting circumcision now? Anyone want to take a guess at that? Why would he be discounting it at this point? Performed by humans. People weren't born that way, right? And has anything changed maybe in the last 50 years or so uh, that Paul might be writing in reference to? What's changed? Jesus. Jesus, okay? You have to remember that in circumcision, right, there was no saving power in and of itself. There's no saving power in the act of service, that in and of itself, just like baptism, okay? 
in and of itself, there's no saving power in, in baptism. This is something that sets us apart from, from the Roman Catholic uh, point of view. That, that there's, there's something happening there at, at, uh, at, um, at baptism. Having said that, we also don't believe that there's not nothing happening at baptism. We, it's, it's not just a sign. We believe that there is a spiritual transaction happening when we baptize our infants. Is it saving? Is it saving grace? No. But this is, I've been really doing a lot of reading on this recently because they were testing me over this in, uh, in, uh, for ordination, right? Uh, and, and that is, is, is uh, one of the questions is, 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 there, is grace conferred at baptism? Okay, this was a trick question almost because there was, the room was even divided when we started talking about it a little bit because it requires a little bit of explaining. Is grace, what we believe, what we pray, is grace conferred at baptism? Some of you are saying no. You say no. Anyone say yes? Okay. Now, if you take a close reading of the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, there's one section, 27.3, I believe it is, that says in and of itself there is no grace. There's no, there's no power in and of itself that is being conferred by baptism, okay? But then in, in, in the next chapter, in 28, it does say that grace is conferred at baptism. Qualifier, there's a qualifier, to those to whom that grace belongeth, it says. Do you know what that means? Huh? To, the, to the elect. Okay, so here's how it works. This is all extra, by the way. This is all free. This is all free. <laughs> When an infant is baptized, okay, no, that's not saving power at baptism. But th this is what's so important. I love this. This is such a beautiful picture, okay? Uh, when, 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 when an infant is baptized, uh, and then maybe when they're 8 years old, or 10 years old, or 12 years old, or 40 years old, they come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They can then look back at their baptism in faith, and receive the grace that was handed out to them or given to them at that moment, okay? It's almost like interest. Think about it as interest. A deposit was made, and e even though you didn't realize it was accruing something, something was happening, and in that moment, something spiritual, a spiritual transaction happened for the elect, okay? Same, by the same rationale. Let's just say you have an infant who is, who is baptized and who never becomes saved, was grace conferred at that moment at baptism? No. This is going to sound harsh, okay? But in that moment, if they, they never come to faith, in that moment, judgment, judgment is, is poor. So he, the, the, the revelation of God always is, is like a two-edged sword. There's always good news, bad news. There's always, there's, there's judgment, but there's redemption, okay? And so when we, when we think about the, the, uh, the transaction that's happening there at baptism, it's fascinating. And so that's why we say we separate ourselves from the Roman Catholics by saying, no, uh, we don't believe it's saving power, but we don't go so far as, as the Baptists do, uh, uh, and, and they say, it's just a memorial. It's just, a, it's just something. No, we say something, something is happening there. Something is happening. A spiritual transaction is happening, particularly for those of the elect, particularly for those who, who come to saving knowledge. They can look back on baptism and receive the grace that was being poured out in that moment in faith. They can receive it. And so each one of you, whether you realize it or not, when you were baptized, something was happening. And now you can look back at that moment and say, by grace through faith. Grace through faith. faith grace through faith, yeah. Saved by grace through faith, okay? Remember that. 
point it, even if you didn't know what was happening in your baptism, you can look at it because God knew what was happening in your baptism. And also, in that, one other thing, it does say in that same chapter in Westminster 28, uh, 28 3, the time is not, does not make it efficacious. The, the moment is not what makes it effective. Uh, it, it's later on. It's, 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 the, it's the sanctifying process that you can then look back and say, thank you, Lord, for doing something at that moment, moment even though I didn't realize what was happening. Did you have a question? I, I would like for you, if you, if you would, to discuss the, the Presbyterian, the PCA, reasoning behind the fact that, obviously, when we, we baptize our children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Discuss why. Why do we feel it is absolutely necessary for us to baptize our children? And we know for a fact if they are elected, they're going to be saved anyway. Great, great question. Okay, because it all ties back to what we're talking about here. Because God gave Abraham a sign in Genesis 17 that says, uh, I'm going to give you a sign, okay, and this is going to mark you as separate. This is going to mark you as distinct. And so when we do baptism, we're doing the same thing. Now, why did it change, though? Why did it change? I know a lot of you struggle with this. Why did it change from, from uh, circumcision to baptism? How are those two related? Okay, this is fascinating. What, did someone? Blood. Blood. That's a great answer. Think about the Passover, okay? The Passover, what is the, what is the New Testament fulfillment of the Passover? Say it. What, what's the sign that we observe? We do it every week. Communion. Passover in the Old Testament, a bloody sign, non-bloody in the New Testament. We, we, we drink wine, we eat bread. Circumcision, bloody in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, not bloody. Why the difference? Why do we do not bloody in the, in the New Testament? Because the blood has been shed once and for all. Okay, and when you start making these, these points, this is why whenever I get into a discussion with one of my Baptist friends about, you know, how, you know is, is, is this really a carryover? You, you really have to look at the whole of Scripture. You have to look at the overarching narrative of Scripture that says that I made a covenant with you, not your covenant with me, God says. I made a promise to you that I will save you. And you remember what he did with Abraham when he walked through the, the pillar, he walked through the, 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 the pillars of fire. And, and what was Abraham doing in the, in the process when he says, he, he walked through this, these animals, they were split in half. And as, he, as the Lord walked through these animals that were split in half as a, as a fiery pot, that's as if he was saying, may this happen to me. May these animals that were split and divided in two, may that happen to me if I don't keep my covenant with you. Meanwhile, Abraham was sound asleep. He was sound asleep. My covenant with you. And so this is why we baptize infants, because unlike our Baptist friends who say, I, I, it's, it's really my, I want, to, I want to acknowledge my commitment to you, Lord, before I'm baptized. We're saying, no, it's the Lord's commitment to me, even when I'm unaware, even when I'm sound asleep, even when I'm sound asleep. Uh, and that's what, we're, that's what our, our, our belief in baptism is rooted in. It's, and it's a uh, it's fantastic. And, and the more you dig into it, again, I, I, I think we often look for a silver bullet in Scripture that says, show me the Scripture, the Scripture. And there are some. There are some that you really have to chew on to really say, uh, you know, that, that, well, that is something indicative of the fact that uh, baptism is the new sign of the covenant. Uh, you know, but again, it, it's more about looking at the overarching narrative of Scripture and the unfolding of Scripture. Uh, and the more you get into it, the more you just, you just like, oh, my my word, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that, that 
your promise to me, and it goes back to what we're talking about, grace. It's grace, not my commitment to him, his commitment to me, okay? Um, all right, let's see, I got way off track there, but here's a couple other things for us to try and get us back on track. Talking about the sign, talking about what, what uh, Paul is saying here, um, made by hands. Think about my, my wedding ring, for example. This is a, is a sign, right? It's a sign. It's symbolic of a holy union. Uh, if I ever lost my ring, or if I ever forget, forget to put my, my ring on one day, does that mean my marriage is dissolved? No. No, the authority behind the sign of my wedding ring is what gives this wedding ring power, okay? So in the same way as circumcision was a sign, the sign in of itself wasn't the thing that had power. It was the authority, it was the power behind the sign that really gave it power. Now, even then, even with circumcision in the Old Testament, look what the chief objective was. It wasn't about, it wasn't about uh, making yourself, giving yourself a physical mark, Okay? That was a sign, but it wasn't ultimately always about that. Watch, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So the circumcision itself was a sign of something that was to happen on the inside, the circumcision and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and, with all, uh, and that, that, that you may live. Um, Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Again, it was the sign that pointed to the, the spiritual reality. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. Okay, uh, so circumcision is the sign that points to what the Lord does to the heart. So this is why Paul tells us, especially in light of the fact that they're, they're using it as a term of derision. They're walking around calling people the uncircumcised. Oh, you're the uncircumcised. Circumself circumcision itself counts for nothing. It's now nothing more than a human act done with hands when you get down to brass tacks. Okay, makes sense? Is that pretty clear, fairly clear? Uh, I know there's a lot, that's why I say there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so, desired result, which the sign pointed to was a circumcised heart, a heart that was set apart, and that's always been the case. That's always been the case, Old Testament and New. That's been the objective, okay? So Paul continues and reminds them that it wasn't so long ago, verse 12, remember, that you were at that same time separated from Christ. You were once separated from Christ, okay? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers. Because remember, he's talking, he's talking to a Gentile audience, a mostly Gentile audience. You were once separated, uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God uh, in the world. So, so they're separated from Christ, not, not simply because they didn't take a sign. All right. They were separated. They were outside the commonwealth. They were outside of the community of Christ. They hadn't been called in. And in some respects, they were physically, you know, even prevented from going into the temple. You know, there, was a, there was a literal dividing mark where they says, well, OK, you can you can be baptized into our faith, but you're still out here. You still are in the outer courts. You can't come in. OK. And so in, in one respect, they had been without hope. In other words, Paul is saying that they were outside the sphere of God's people and, and all of his covenant promises. Okay, so do you see what we had here? What, what it boiled down to is there were two worlds. Uh, we had the covenant community of God, and then we had the Gentiles. Two worlds. You know, until what? Until we read the rest of the passage, verse 13. But now, but now Christ, but now Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, dividing uh, the... Uh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments 
expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Again, a lot there. Okay, the first thing, first thing you have to notice here is that Paul tells us specifically what the origin of that dividing wall of hostility is. That dividing wall or partition, you know, what is it? it it's, it's the law. It's the law, the commandments and ordinances. Now, how, again, how in the world could, we, could, could the law, uh, commandments and ordinances have been a barrier dividing and creating hostility between Jew and Gentile? Remember, this was something, again, it was given by God. It was something given by God, and it creates a, a barrier of hostility. Why is that? How can that be? Okay, remember what we just talked about with circumcision. Circumcision was something given to us by God. And therefore, if there was a misuse of that sign, it wasn't because of the power behind the sign. If there was a misuse, it was because of the people. Same thing here with the law. There's no fault with a lawgiver. No fault with a lawgiver. Let me explain a bit. First of all, when it talks about the law, if he had just said the law, he might have just meant Ten Commandments, right? Uh, because the essence of the Old, Old Testament law is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. But by adding the law with its commandments and ordinances, he's referring to the whole thing, the whole, the whole big ball that we call the law. You know, a lot of people would, would, would even further broaden that to Genesis, uh, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Particularly Leviticus, particularly uh, in Exodus, and all those, and then the, the restatement of the law in, uh, in Deuteronomy, the moral law, the ceremonial law, everything. He's referring to the dietary laws. He's referring to the dress codes here. He's referring to all of it, burnt offerings and rituals. Uh, he's referring to the need for, for washing before going into worship. He's referring to all of that. Uh, he's referring to the laws like the year of Jubilee, where once every 50 years all debts were canceled. All of that. All of that. He's referring to all of it. Now, here's a question for you. Why did God give his people all those ordinances? What was he trying to do? What was his objective in his saying, here's the law, now go obey it? What was the point of it? Was the, to show us our weaknesses? Because we, couldn't, we can't keep up the law, right? To make, them se- to make the people of God separate. There's a couple of functions here. Yes, I think the law pointed us to the fact that we need a savior because we can't do this on our own. But it was also to say, I, I want to separate you. I want you to be a light on a hill. I want you to be uh, distinct. I want you to look different. I want you to act different. I want you to smell different. Because by some of the foods, the dietary laws, that affected everything, okay? And now, okay, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see, again, they were extremely compassionate towards, towards the, the, the poor. You know, the, the years of Jubilee, every 50 years, everything would revert back. Why did he do that? Again, he was asking them to be a light on a hill. If you read the ordinances, you'll see that God is asking the Jewish nation to be, a, listen to this, to be a mini version of the new creation. It was a small version of what would happen ultimately, ultimately with the new creation, a mini version of what he's going to do once history completes itself. They were there to show the world what people look like who are under the, the, the protective umbrella of a benevolent, righteous, good God. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like, okay? So why don't we have that law now? Say it again. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, okay? Now, now think about this. Again, the, the law was never meant to be a means of measuring up, okay? If it was a mini version of God's new creation, and, and you're a new creation, right? 
you have the Spirit of God within you now. You have the Spirit of God within you. God's people, all God's people, Jews and Gentiles, should be now doing this kind of stuff naturally, organically, okay, so that you're, you're not necessarily told, go do this so you're distinct, but because the Spirit now lives within you and works within you, there should be something natural about you that says, that person is the light on a hill. That person is distinct. That person somehow stands out, okay? And the Old Testament was God's way of whispering, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be ultimately. This is how it's going to be uh, in the new covenant, okay? You're going to grow in sanctification. And now you see it naturally outpouring because of the grace that's been extended to you. Okay, so again, the law was never meant to be a means of measuring up. The law was never meant to be a means to earn grace. Remember what we were saying at the start of our time, level playing field so that we can only point to Christ, so that, so that we can only look at that and say, this is what Christ did and not say that, that I did this. You have to, to follow certain laws, practices, and ordinances to, to do this. To earn, that was never the intent to earn God's favor. That was never the intent of the law. Uh, his purpose has always been to show the world, look what God does. Look what God does. Look how God changes people. Look how God sometimes makes it a physical difference in someone's life uh, by, by his grace. Look how God redeems. Look how God makes new. That's been the story all along. Old Testament and new. Does, does, everyone make, does that make sense? Any questions, thoughts, or comments on that much so far? We're just now getting into the, the, the meat of it here. So... Uh, we good? Yeah, okay. So that was the influence the law was supposed to have on the Jews. But Paul points out that, that what naturally happened was a sense of, of, uh, of superiority and distance, the natural tendency of the human heart here. Again, this is why they were saying, using terms of derision, like the uncircumcision. Uh, the natural tendency of the human heart is to rejoice in those things that make us better than other people. That's our natural tendency, our natural sinful ten tendency. That's our disposition. As a result, we're not at peace. Okay, now start thinking about what this looks like in the church. Even inside the church, it can happen inside the church. The more self-worth you have apart from Christ, the more self-worth you have apart from Christ, the harder it is for you to get along with people, people who aren't as smart as you, people who aren't as talented as you, people who aren't as beautiful as you or together as you, that's what self-worth apart from Christ does to you. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed this? This is why Christ had such harsh words for the Pharisees. The, the law was meant to point to grace, but for them, what happened? What happened to the Pharisees? What's that? Better than everyone else. It made me better than you. Look, look what I've done. And th this is what you ought to do too. You need to be like me, just like we were talking in the beginning, right? It turned into a means of self-righteousness. It turned into something the Pharisees used to beat people up with, okay? We have this, this, this horrible natural inclination to get our identity by looking down on others, okay? Uh, by excluding others. We, we, we see this in the prayer of the Pharisees. Remember uh, prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, when the Pharisee lifted his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. His first sentence was... Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Okay, there it is. There it is. We do this sort of thing all the time. In order to feel better about ourselves, we have to tear someone else down. And, and I hate to say it. I know this, it's plain to see in, in, in the broader world, but it happens in the church too. It happens in the church. Our natural disposition is to focus on self, to achieve through self. Our natural spectacles tend to view the world and, and react to the world based on how it affects me. 
First, my brother, first, no, me first, my brother second. But guess what? Paul says, no, it's not your achievement that carries weight. It's not your bloodline that separates you is what he's saying here. It's nothing that you can point to in and of yourself that sets you apart. You know, once we were separated from Christ, now Christ has drawn near to us. Once we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, now we're fellow citizens in Israel. You know, once we were outside the curtain, now we're all the way in. Okay? Uh, w- um, once we were strangers, now we're, we're, we're members of the, of, the, of the covenant of promise. Um, once we were without hope, now we're fellow heirs of, of, of all God has to give. Uh, you know, once we were without God in the world, and now we're members of God's household. I mean, put your mind around that. Not because of anything you did. Okay? And, 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 the, whole, and the whole picture here, let's see what time we got. Uh, the whole picture here is not that we move into these blessings on, on separate parallel tracks apart from Israel. Is, like Israel was track A and now we're on track B. The, the picture that is true, uh, the, the true Israel is, has always been the church of Christ. That's always been the true Israel. Uh, and this is, again, that was a small version. What was going to happen on the larger scale? We are part of that, that uh, inheritance now. That's why the Lord told Abraham, you're going to be the father of not just one great nation. We father every, every family on the earth will be blessed through you. Many nations is what he was told. This has been the plan all along. We're the people of Jesus, not Jew and Greek, not slave and free, male and female, but Christ. We're united in Christ. With me so far? Good. Don't ever forget that. Again, it's, there's nothing in it, not bloodline, not achievement, nothing that separates you uh, from someone else. You are still part of that, that, that uh, same leveling playing field of grace. Okay, uh, let's see what we should wrap up with here. Um, how, let's try and bring this to a, a practical level. This is where it gets a little prickly, I'm afraid. Okay, this is where it starts to get difficult. Uh, because again, what we're talking about, you and I are not just Jew and Gentile, more than Jew and Gentile. We're talking about the church, a church that is united in Christ, uh, Christ is the great unifier. Okay, so what is it that separates you from your neighbor, neighbor? What barrier is it? What barrier separates you from your, your, your spouse or your coworker? What barrier of human achievement or self-righteousness has been built up in your life that present, prevents you from being united with, with one another? Whatever barrier exists, you have to remember this. Let's, let's start with this verse here. 1 John 4, 16 to 17 says, So we have come to know... And, have, uh, and, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Okay, why am I reading this? You know what he's saying here? He says, our love for each other is made complete because you and I know that we are loved and accepted, okay? The fact that we know we're loved and accepted has a direct and immediate impact on how we interact with one another. It should affect every single encounter we we have with one another, with anybody. We know our conscience is clear. On judgment day, we're gonna be able to look, uh, we're gonna be able to to look the justice of, of God right in the face because Jesus has died for us, okay? He's saying, your love can't be complete unless you know you're accepted, unless you know on judgment day that you will not have any problem. You'll be able to walk right into God's arms. Uh, another way to put it is you can't love completely unless you know you're completely loved. All right? I believe that's a Tim Keller phrase. Uh, that's why it says there is freedom that comes from knowing that. When somebody criticizes you, do you get defensive? Okay? 
or do you say, I'm loved, I'm accepted, and I don't have to defend myself here because the verdict of the one who counts has already been laid on me. I'm not guilty. Okay, I'm accepted. I'm in the beloved. Do you think that when you're criticized? If we can't take criticism well, it means we're putting too much stock in something that doesn't define us any more than circumcision defines us or the law defines us. Our identity comes from Christ. That's what this verse means here. Okay, so here's where it hurts a little. If you can't get along with another Christian, it's because in some way you're feeling superior. All right? Because you've built up something that you've placed too much value in. And I say that, when I say that, there are a couple people that pop into my mind that I think, I got to work this out with them. I got, because if, if I don't get along with them, it's because I'm thinking too highly of myself. It's because I, I think somehow that I've placed my, myself above them. All right, what is it? What am I putting too much stock in? What, what am I valuing more highly than my relationship with, with Christ, which surpasses all? Okay, the only, way you can, the only way you can stay bitter at somebody is if you feel superior or putting too much stock in the thing that, that, they're, that they're attacking. I told you this was going to sting a little bit. The only way you can stay bitter as at someone is if you feel you aren't really capable of being the same way. If they've offended you, you get so offended because you feel like, you know what? I wouldn't do that. Or would you? Would you? These are the tough questions you have to ask yourself. Remember we talked about that level playing field? What we say there is there but for the grace of God go I. Okay, so if someone is harming you, you have to be able to say, you know what? I I'm probably capable of doing that same thing to someone else, and I probably have, and I probably have at some point. But because of God's grace, because the grace has been poured out on me, I'm accepted, I'm loved, I, I, I've been forgiven, I should, by that same metric, forgive others too. For example, here's, here's an example. If someone calls me arrogant, uh, what, what should I do? You tell me. What do I do? If someone calls me arrogant, what should I do with that? That's a great start. Yes, absolutely right. Maybe it's true. Okay, that's your first step. You know, if someone calls you anything, consider it. Maybe it's true because you know what? It might be. Okay, so take some time to do that first. Consider the fact that this might be true. Okay, after you've considered it, uh, what do you do then? You can either acknowledge it and repent, right? Or consider it, dismiss it. Dismiss it, right? You know, if, if you get offended, get bitter, uh, and you decide to not talk to them anymore, something, something's not right. Something is off, okay? Uh, what barrier have I just built up that I'm holding higher than Christ? Okay, you only have a couple options. You consider it and repent, consider it and dismiss it because it's not true. And you know what? It doesn't affect you in your relationship with Christ, okay? So if you're, if you're gonna say, I'm not gonna talk to them anymore, you've built up a barrier that doesn't need to be there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I th- 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 we're talking about the church here for right now. There, there's, a, there's a line of application that would apply outside the world too, uh, but we're then entering into a different conversation because now you're, now you're in two different worlds, okay? But in terms of how we get along with one another in the church, that's my first challenge to you for here first. This is why the sign is on the door, how to build a church, because these are things that we need to learn to do as Christians. We need to learn to get along with each other, and we need to learn how to not build up these walls of hostility between one another. Because again, we have the Spirit of God in us 
That should tear down any walls of hostility. Yeah, Dean. I think, I think that there's going to be a longer conversation about yeah. this because we're running out of time. Yeah. Of course. Well, if it's not true mm -hmm. what you're saying about me, and I, you know, I could just take a step back and say, well, I don't believe that's true. But then this person's kind of rogue going around bashing people. Yeah. I mean, are we supposed to just play that kind of turn? Yeah. Now, now we're talking about a different conversation. Now we're talking about reconciliation. The, the only thing that I want to address right now, right now, is that building walls of hostility. Okay, because again, there's, there's steps to be taken to now resolve my relationship between you and I if you say something about me. But how, how, what's my immediate response to that thing that you're saying to me? That's the first thing that we, that's the first thing we have to master before we can even get on to, to this part of reconciliation. Because again, if I get to the point where you tell me something and I get so offended by it that I'm not even going to talk to you, what hope do we have of reconciling? But again, my first step is to acknowledge that, okay, receive it consider it. Now, now I'm in a position that if I've not built up a wall of hostility, now I can approach you. Now I can have a conversation with you and say, hey, listen, what's going on here? You know, why, why are you now spreading this around the church and those kind of things? But if I, if I erect this wall of hostility, what hope do we even have of having that conversation? All right. Uh, let's see. Let's see. That gives us 10 till. Um, I'm going to put a pin in it there. Okay, there's, again, we could, we could carry this conversation on next week, too, uh, but uh, I'd be glad to. And if there's, there's something, again, that, that particularly bothers you about this idea, about, about these, these thoughts, you know, please come talk to me. Send me a note. Uh, we'll, we'll work our way through it. And if, and if I've said something that maybe is not quite right, I'd love to clear that up. But, uh, but again, I say these things as a challenge to myself first so that I can then share these things with you. And maybe together, if we, if we figure these things out, uh, maybe we have a a church that looks more loving. Now, I'm not saying this church doesn't look loving, and I mean the church in the broader sense. I mean the Christian church, not specifically Christ Presbyterian Church, Christians in general. We have to learn how to navigate these things between ourselves as the body of Christ before that we can turn ourselves and our attention to the outside world and say, hey, come follow, come be a part of this. Like, no, you gotta get your house in order first. You guys are a mess. Let's figure these things out first. And so, again, we're just scratching the surface, and hopefully we get into uh, some more things uh, as, we, as we proceed forward uh, in our study, okay? Uh, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have removed these walls of hostility. You, we thank you that you have, have restored what was broken and that there was a, a wall of hostility that existed between us and you, and you repaired that. You gave us your son, and you gave us access to, uh, to you, uh, that we can sit in your, in your throne room and, and pour our hearts out and that we have an intercessor who, who sits beside you and, and prays for us and, uh, and says, this one's with me. Consider what they say. I love them, accept them, and you do every time. Father, help us reflect that posture, uh, not just in our immediate circles, but in our outer circles and then into the world uh, that so desperately needs to, to know this and, and see it. Uh, be with us. Remind us of our relationship with Christ every day uh, and help that be the, the thing that, that centers us. And we pray these things in the name of Christ for his sake. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Have a great Sunday.